Just a heads up, y'all. This episode contains discussions of sexual assault and rape. I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. I'm Gene Demby, and you're listening to Code Switch from NPR. If you've been listening to the podcast lately, you know that all this month we're talking about books, and particularly books about freedom, all kinds of freedom. And Shireen, freedom is something that we realize that we have only when we no longer have it, like when it's been compromised or taken away. I was thinking about that a lot when I sat down to talk with Ashley C. Ford. I know Ashley. Well, I know of her. I've been following her on Twitter for a very long time. Mm -hmm. She's an editor. She's an essayist. She's a podcast host. A very big deal on the internet, as they say. (laughs) She is all those things. She is also, for our purposes, the author of a new memoir. It's called Somebody's Daughter. And Sharina knocked me on my ass. Ooh. Okay. Tell me about it. What what was it that hit you? A lot of our experiences growing up as a black child of a single mother just really resonated with me. Like, at some point, so there were certain pages that felt directly pulled from my childhood. Like, it felt wow. like a little bit too candid and embracing. So, yeah. But, you know, her book is about a lot of things. It's about race. It's about childhood. And it's also about what people in a family owe to each other. But one of the central facts in this book, Shireen, is that it's about her father's incarceration and how his imprisonment fundamentally shaped her childhood and the lives of her mother and her siblings. Mm. It sounds like a very intense book. It is very much so. But one of the things that was so bracing about somebody's daughter to me is just how clear-eyed Ashley is about everything and everyone that she talks about in it. You know, from her father's crime to the ways her mother tried to cope with this unexpected single parenthood that was foisted upon her. We had a very heavy conversation about a month ago, and I asked her about what it was like going to meet her father in prison in her 20s after not having seen this dude for over a decade. And she talked about how hard that visit was, not just emotionally and psychically, But also just logistically, because, like, you know, he was in a state prison. He was hours away. And she said, you know, those visits could just be canceled and called off by the prison for for any reason. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So you go through all of this um, effort and then they can say, forget it. This isn't going to happen today. So you can make the whole trip and not know that it's not happening until you get there. Like maybe there was a lockdown Mm. in the cell block where the person you're going to see is in prison. Maybe a guard decided that you, the visitor, was dressed inappropriately, like anything, right? Mm -hmm. Any of that, you would not even know that until you were there. So you're kind of making this trip to a prison on faith. When you saw your father that first visit, what were you feeling? Do you remember what the moment when you saw him? Like, what was he seated already? Did he come out? He was seated already. Um, The way it works is that you walk into um, what feels like an an elevator, except it's not an elevator. It's it's just like a space. And you're in there with everybody else who's coming into the room for your visit. And they shut a door. The door in front of you is locked. The inmates are on the other side. Um, They lock a door behind you. And all of you visitors are in this little thing like, push together, and then they unlock the door in front of you, and then you have to come out in lines. And you come out, you sign this sheet, 
Um, and my heart was pounding. I mean, the second I stepped into the room, my heart was pounding. I signed the sheet, told them who I was there to see. They told me he was already seated. Um, and as soon as they said that, I turned around because I knew that like, I knew that if he was already there and I turned around, I could see him. And I just turned around to try to find him. And it was really easy because as soon as I turned around, he stood up <laughs> and he's tall. And and I know his face. So um, I, I knew that it w- would not be appropriate for me to run uh, in the prison visiting room. So I didn't do that. But I did walk very quickly um, toward him and we hugged. And it was this massive, 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 massive relief. Hmm. You are deciding after nearly 13 years of not seeing your father um, and only very occasionally responding to his letters. Um, you write in the, in the book, there's a lot of work that goes into visiting a prison and I had no interest in doing that work. When someone you can't remember being physically involved in your life asks for physical involvement in your life, it is hard to know where and how to make room for them. I was 25 years old before I decided to make room for my father. The weight of this lingering choice should have shamed me, but the high possibility, the potential for what kind of man my father might be, persisted. I did not have time to be ashamed. So just tell us what you were hoping for with that meeting with him and that reconciling with him. I think I was hoping for an affirmation of my feelings or or my suspicion that what he had done was not all of who he was mm. and that maybe there was something there something else that I could feel connected to or that would help me understand why I love this person and why I felt connected to this person and we should say when you say what he had done you mean the crime he was in prison for. I mean, which was the crime he was in prison for, which was rape and sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which um, was something that had happened to me when I was thirteen years old, mm-hmm. um, and I found out that that's why he was in prison when I was fourteen years old, and it, it caused. Um, a mental and emotional upheaval in me that I was mostly forced to deal with alone. Hmm. You said you wanted to know why you still loved him. Mm-hmm. Um, this person wasn't in your life, and especially after you found out why he was in prison. Yeah. Um, did you figure out why you did? I think what I figured out is that um, I was looking for justification to love him. Is that what I eventually discovered? Was that I thought I, I needed some way to justify to other people why I loved him. Mm. Um, and that stopped feeling right to me. That stopped feeling like the right answer because I realized that when the reason why I thought I needed justification to love him was because I thought only certain kinds of people deserve to be loved by anyone. And I don't 
believe that anymore. That's not a belief that I have. Mm. Um, I think you have to decide what love looks like to you. You have to figure out the definition of love, how it shows up, what it means, how it behaves, all of those things. Um, And if you decide that you love someone, you're making a decision about how you want to show up for them. And my definition of love personally um, just doesn't include a lack of accountability. I don't think that my love for someone means that they shouldn't face consequences for their actions. I think my love can love someone through those consequences, you know, if especially when they take them seriously, especially when they try. But my love is also a gift and um, not everybody deserves it. So not everybody gets it. Hmm. <laughs> when you, I want to talk about how you found out that this is what your father did. Mm. Can you just sort of tell us that scene? Because it was your grandmother who told you first. Yes. After years of telling me and my brother that it was not her place to tell us why our father was in prison, she told me the reason in the mall, uh, in the food court over Chinese food. She told me that my dad was in prison for rape and she did it in defense of my mother because my mother and I had gotten into an argument earlier that day. My grandma didn't know what it was about, um, and my mother didn't want me to talk to my grandmother about our argument. And so this is just the way it ended up going, that she decided today was the day that she wanted to defend my mom, and she wanted to do it by telling me that I didn't understand everything that my mom had been through. And if I did understand that this is what my mom had been through, then I would only seek to make her life easier Hmm. or as easy as possible. At the time when you were 14, when you found this out, did you understand that that's what your grandmother was doing? No, no. I, I honestly, at the time, felt like she was just always looking for a reason to be on whoever's side wasn't right in front of her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My grandma was not the kind of person that if you came to her and told her about something that happened with someone else, that she would be like, you know, well, why would they do that? Well, you should tell them. Like, she is not going to automatically be on your side. She's going to be like, what did you do? What did you say? And so I thought that that's what was happening, was that she had just used this information as kind of an ultimate um, card, a trump card to lay on the table and, and say that, you know, you don't know the kind of pain that she's felt here is an, ex- an extreme example, <laughs> um, a traumatic <laughs> example of her pain, just one traumatic example of her pain. And because you are her daughter, it is your job to soothe that in her or to, at the very least, 
keep your feelings about it away from her. Mm. How did you reconcile what your father was, I don't know if you have reconciled it, the crime that your father was in prison for with your own feelings of vulnerability as a black woman moving through the world with, you know, this person that you met, that you were in the process of um, building a relationship with? I think it's just accepting reality. Mm -hmm. Like more than anything else, because the reality is that I have this dad, my biological father, who is a big part of the foundation of my self-esteem through these letters that he sent to me as a child. That's true. It is also true that my dad is a person who raped two people. And that will always be true. It's true that 30 years later, my dad is out of prison. He lives a small, quiet life and just makes things and minds his business. And he has to carry all of the things that he's done. And there are other people in the world who, has to, who have to carry what he's done to them. And all of those things are true at the same time. That's just reality. Mm. I can decide how I want to move through reality. I can decide how I want to react to reality. But I think what's most important is that I just accept reality. And there will always be consequences for our actions. But what are you going to do on a day-to-day basis while you're living your life? Are you going to live in a place where you deny reality and you think to yourself, I love this person, but only because I choose to forget that they've done terrible things, heinous things? Or do I say, this is reality, this is what it is, and I love you, and this thing that you've done, this terrible, horrible, heinous thing, I can't forgive you for, and I'll never try. When we come back... Almost every win I've had is because I I would not bow to authority. I refuse. (laughs) Stay with us. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Marguerite Casey Foundation, which imagines a world where changemakers have the freedom to create a truly representative economy. The foundation believes representation for working people in our democracy and economy must include their ability to shape them. Learn more about the foundation at CaseyGrants.org and connect with them on Twitter at CaseyGrants. This message comes from NPR sponsor, The Hopeful Neighborhood Project. What if we all used our unique gifts and talents to pursue the common good of our own neighborhoods? The Hopeful Neighborhood Project is building a collaborative network committed to improving neighborhood well-being. 
Their team and free resources can support you as you imagine the possibilities for a more hopeful neighborhood right where you live. Visit hopefulneighborhood.org to connect with a neighborhood project coach and learn more. Good question. That's a really good question. It's a great question. This is free therapy. Thank you for asking me that. God, that's such a good question. That's an interesting question. But what Fresh Air interviews are really about are the interesting answers. Listen and subscribe to Fresh Air from WHYY and NPR. Jean. Shireen. Code switch. We're talking with Ashley C. Ford, the author of Somebody's Daughter. Her memoir might at first blush seem to be about her relationship with her dad, who was in prison for this horrible, horrible crime. But Shireen is probably actually more so about her mother. Because her mom was actually there. Her mom raised her. (laughs) Her mom, I'm assuming, can't be as romanticized or idealized or even abstracted in the way that kids might do that to a parent who's not around. Right. Like, her mom is there every day as a whole flawed person, right? Yeah, and also her own dreams for her life were probably completely upended when Ashley's father was locked up. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, her mom was young and angry and trying to figure out what to do with this new life that she didn't sign up for. And so Ashley and I talked about that. There's a moment that you recount from when you're in grade school um, about her, you coming home and getting a beating because a teacher called home, called your mom, and told her that you said something vulgar in class, which you did not say. Um, and the next day you confronted the teacher, which, by the way, props to you for confronting that teacher. Um, that scene was was very powerful to me. Like, oh. Um, and the <laughs> teacher realized that something had happened at home. Um, and then when she sort of inquired, she realized that, the little, that another little girl had misremembered the moment and sort of misattributed this thing to you. So this teacher calls home again to your mom, tells her what happens. And you get home, little, you know, grade school you. You get home, and you're basically waiting for your mom to apologize to you for beating you and for not believing you. And she just would not or could not do that. She could not give you that. Um, Why did you include—I mean, so let me just say that that hit so close to home for me on a bunch of levels. Why did you decide to include those moments, like moments like that, in the book about your mom? Because I realized in doing creative work and also some therapy work, like let's be real, I've been in a lot of therapy, I identified that as pretty much the moment that I stopped trusting my mother's judgment. (laughs) When I began to second guess most, if not all, of her choices. because I stopped feeling safe. I stopped feeling like my mom was primarily concerned with my safety. And it wasn't that I hadn't suspected that before, <laughs> that moment, which is sad. It, it was just that um, before that, I think it was more of like this confusion. I, I kept thinking that you know, yes, my mom is this way sometimes, but I keep doing the wrong things. 
I keep saying the wrong things. I keep not reading her mood or her desire right. And that's why I keep getting in trouble. Mm -hmm. And I confronted that teacher because I knew that I was right. (laughs) I knew that I hadn't done it. And so I, I was confused about why this had happened. And, you know, I was probably really hopped up on some Nickelodeon where (laughs) kids had a lot more power than they do in real life. And (laughs) I went and I talked to her about it. And, you know, to her credit, the teacher was like, oh, I've made a mistake and really did seek to rectify Mm -hmm. it. And my mom's reluctance to just say she was sorry or to even say like just say like not even i'm sorry like i hit you if she had just said i'm sorry i didn't listen or i'm sorry i didn't believe you or something very small and specific i'm sorry that i made you call the little girl in class who's your best friend and apologize to her for having to hear you say that like it was it was a lot her anger was was just it was it was overwrought and it was cruel and as i got older i realized that a lot of people's moms did stuff mm. like that i think that's why i decided to include it was because it's one of those things that i hadn't ever read about um i had never found a moment like that in a memoir um that that I felt like, yeah, this is what this is like. Like, this is that moment. I had never, ever found it. But I knew from talking to my classmates, from talking to my peers, talking to my cousins, that that was really common for our parents to have this moment of rage or this moment of like misdirected violence, like in some capacity and find out that they were wrong and just refuse to apologize. Like being able, and we were all able to have this thing as well, where it's almost like we looked into their faces and knew that they realized that they should apologize. And we watched them decide not to. And we didn't know why. And we all came up with our own reasons why. I'm going to go on a little bit of a, of a tangent here, so bear with me. But That's okay. I wonder how much a moment like that shaped your eventual politics, right? Because one of the Mm. things (laughs) I remember having a moment reading this book, thinking about a a very specific time. I have a a twin sister um, in which we got a beating for something that did not happen. And it was sort of the germ of this idea that like violence was capricious and arbitrary. Um, And um, that the people who wielded will not apologize, right? And this is my mom, mm. right? And mm-hmm. I don't think I ever connected those things at all until I was reading your memoir. Like, oh, this is the reason I feel this way about policing today, right? Is <laughs> because of that experience when I was in the second or third grade. Yes, Gene. Yes. Listen, this was... <laughs> I'm so glad that you're talking about that because I I often think of that moment and I'm not kidding you as the root of so much of what what I, I would realize eventually was a budding and developing political ideology. My biggest, 
I don't even want to say biggest. I would just say one of my many points of contention um, with the way most things are run is the idea that authority is infallible. Mm -hmm. And that when you are in a situation where someone has named or unnamed authority over you, that you should lean into their reality to the detriment of your own, to to the detriment of your own experiences, to the detriment at times of your humanity. That is what authority demands of us, that that is what order or, or even structure demand of us. Um, and I am not convinced. I mean, I, <laughs> I've spent my whole life up until this point essentially being like almost every win I've had is because I, I would not bow to authority. Hmm. I refuse. <laughs> and when people would say things to me or try to get me to do things based simply on their authority, not being able to convince me um, or even engage with me about the whys or wherefores, like that's the easiest way to just never have to deal with me again. I will I will just remove myself from the equation. And I think a lot of it does come from these moments of like, I, I'm sorry, I didn't have the kind of childhood where I felt safe. Most of the adults around me did and said things that were demonstrably, demonstrably wrong and or hypocritical. And it's not that that's the worst thing in the world. It, you know, like these are human beings. Mm -hmm. What was the worst thing was being told that I was the human being and they were gods, <laughs> which is sort of how I was supposed to look at it. Hmm. You write that your mother almost died. She had this medical scare. And in this moment, you write, quote, I was hers and she was mine. That's how it had always been. Who would I be if not hers? I didn't want to be without her, end quote. Can you talk about this tension between what your relationship with your mother was and is and what you wanted or maybe still want it to be? There's always been a tension in our relationship because um, my mother believes and has always believed um, that my love for her should allow me to selectively hear and remember. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and... I believe that without realizing that this was the implication of it, that my mother um, has asked me in, in her own way to deny myself in order to allow her to see me the way she wants to. And as much as I love my mother... I don't think it's a fair request um, to ask me to choose. In my dream of dream of dreams, in my fantasy, it was always, you know, one day my mom and I will have some conversation that breaks everything open and we will realize that we can be honest with each other and we can be open with each other. And 
she will give me the benefit of the doubt and she will understand that my need to mm. talk about true things is not um, an attempt to punish her, um, but an attempt to connect with her. And, you know, that's the fantasy. The reality is that my mom is who she is <laughs> and she is who she will always be. And I know that she loves me and I know that she's proud of me. Um, but I am now at a place where I have decided that I just have to trust her to be on her own journey and process things her own way. And I do. I do trust her to be on her own journey. I think she can do it. I think she has everything she needs to do it. And I think that um, when she does, I will be here. You know, mm. I'm here now. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think about my mom. That's what I think about our relationship. It's, it is always the same and it is always changing. One of the things that I think about a lot when I have these very conversations with my friends with frightening regularity um, about our own parents is how much it feels like we are equipped with, you know, because of like, obviously like you, we, you and I have very similar backgrounds in that. Like we, I think occupy a different social location than our parents did. Right. Um, so we have access to therapy and things mm -hmm. like that. And there's like language that we use and like frameworks we use about this stuff, or trying to recontextualize the stuff that we, the ways we grew up, right? That we have that they didn't have. And sometimes when, when I'm talking to my mom, uh, trying to talk to my mom about this stuff, I can just feel this like gigantic divide and like, like she cannot, she does not know what I'm talking about. You know what I mean? Right. Yes. <laughs> I think that that's, um, one of my most favorite things about my book is the fact that I wrote about my very individual, unique experience of childhood, but I also tried to write the common experience of a kind of childhood mm. that I don't see written about a lot. And that's the childhood that you don't necessarily look back on and think, man, I had a terrible childhood. Yep. Like, this is a, you know, some child called it shit. Like, <laughs> it's not like that. But it is, it's something about it that you're like, but there were these moments. Mm -hmm. There were these moments. And it's like, yeah, we got to work through that stuff. But it's also important to tell those stories because kids are still going through those mm -hmm. things. They might be going through them in a different way. But they know those feelings. They know those feelings of like, I, I need to feel less alone. I need to feel safer. I, I need to feel like this isn't going as fast as it's going. I, I need to feel like, you know, if somebody else isn't on my side, then please somebody teach me how to be on my own side. Like we grow up so many of us with all of that going on inside us. And I think we get older and we look back and instead of being able to look at that confused child self with compassion, we look at them with derision. Mm. We look at them like, why were you so stupid? Why were you so weak? Remember when you did this embarrassing thing? Remember when you believed this wrong thing? 
and we have so little compassion for the fact that like, well, yeah, I believed wrong things. I was learning. Mm. Like, that's like the point of childhood. I was a child. That's why I believe that. And the only reason we can't look back at that child self and have compassion for them is because we probably didn't experience anybody else have having compassion for us when we were a child. Yeah, one of the things you just said that just resonate with me is like that is exactly right. Like the, I grew up in a in a environment in which there was a lot of precarity, right? But it was not like though there were people who grew up around me who were really, really, really going through it, right? Um, mm-hmm. And comparatively, like I was like, oh, well, I'm not. That's not me, you know? Like, like, like it almost felt like I never knew what how to contextualize my childhood, right? Because it wasn't. Like, I had a good childhood, like, in all these ways, right? Um, and especially compared right. to the people who were in proximity to me, right? Yes. But I just never knew what to do with the fact that, like, uh, some of the shit was kind of... Sus! Some of mm-hmm. it was kind of like, uh, no, this this hurts. That's a lot of what it is, is, like, it, it hurt or it was confusing in right. some way. But you weren't allowed to be hurt or confused. Like, I think like people will be like, well, what would happen when you would tell your mom you were sad? Tell my mom I'm sad. Right. <laughs> what kind of what are you talking about? Right now? What Why are would you I talking about? Why would yeah. I do that? Why would I tell her I, I was experiencing any emotion that wasn't coded as positive? Hmm. And I carry that in me all the time, even as like, it wasn't until I was an adult and started, you know, you have that moment, I think sometimes where you repeat something that a parent said to you or a parent did to you that has maybe become a family joke or like an inside joke between you and your siblings. (laughs) And everybody looks at you like that. That's not funny. That's not very kind, you know, or you repeat something or the worst. You repeat it to like your therapist because you're like, well, you know, such and such and such a thing. And the therapist gives you like the eyebrows and is like, I'm sorry that happened. (laughs) And you're like, wait, what? Like, (laughs) what? Like, is that? And it's because every time you hurt, every time you got upset, it was it was so downgraded. It was you were made to feel so silly for experiencing that emotion that you learn to turn it into something silly. And you've never considered how it has seriously impacted you. And it has seriously impacted you. <laughs> um, it's, it's not great. It's not great. All you have in your head is this rolling tape of like, well, yeah, my mom did this, mm-hmm. but I have a list of 50 other things that she didn't do. <laughs> so I, I think this one doesn't count. <laughs> have you talked to your parents, either of them, about this book? I'm just really, really curious as to whether they read it and how they received it. They haven't read it yet. Um my dad is, I'm going to see my dad next week, um, and he wants me to, like, hand it to him and, like, sign it in front of him and stuff. So hmm. um, so he won't read it until then, um, though I think he has listened to a lot of my interviews and, like, read the articles and things like that. Um, my mom probably won't read it. I don't know. Like, she... Might read it. She might not. I, I don't feel very attached 
to whether she reads it or not. I, I didn't write it for her. I love her um, and I wanted to be fair to her, but I did not write the book for her. Who did you write it for? I wrote it for me. This is the book I was looking for the first and last time I visited my local library. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this is the book that I, I really wanted and, and needed. Like I, I read that quote years and years and years ago, that random quote that I think is, um, and I can't confirm, but it has been attributed to Toni Morrison mm. a few times that I've seen, um, where she essentially said, you know, write the book you needed. Or write the story you needed or something when you were younger. And at first I thought that was like some hoo-ha and like didn't make a lot of sense. Uh, But eventually I realized that that's what I was already doing. I was trying to write the book that I needed when I felt most alone and most lost. Um, Yeah, I, I wanted to write something that was specific but that had the potential to connect to um, a wide berth of people um, under the common experience of childhood. You know, childhood is hard. (laughs) And I also wanted people to know, you know, we remember things. (laughs) I think that's also part of it. I remembered, these are my memories. This is my story. And I didn't get to tell the truth without fear for a really long time. But now I have me to protect me. And the person, the young, young person inside me who felt like she couldn't tell the truth about who she was, um, has a really strong ally with, uh, with a little bit of writing talent. And we did our best and we put it out in the world. And... That, that's my win. That's my win. Well, I'm really looking forward to reading it myself. And one more time, for those of you who may not have written it down, we were listening to Jean in conversation with Ashley C. Ford about her new memoir called Somebody's Daughter. And that's our show. You can follow us on Twitter and IG at NPR Code Switch and subscribe to our newsletter at npr.org slash code switch newsletter. This episode was produced by Brianna Scott, Jess Kung, and Christina Kala and edited by Christina Kala with help from Leah Danella. And a shout out to the rest of the Code Switch familia, Kumari Devarajan, Alyssa Zhang Perry, Natalie Escobar, Steve Drummond, L.A. Johnson, Karen Grigsby-Bates, and Sam Yellowhorse Kessler. Our intern is Carmen Molina Acosta. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Miraji. Be easy, yo. Peace. The Indicator from Planet Money is your daily source for economic stories, stories that peel back this onion we know as the U.S. economy. Today on the show, today on the show, today on the show, desperately seeking construction workers. Forget everything you thought you knew about the unemployment numbers. 10 minutes or less, that is all it takes for us to explain what is going on with all those numbers. Listen and follow The Indicator from NPR.